This episode of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast is sponsored by Apple TV Plus, presenting the A24 and Apple original film On the Rocks, written and directed by Sofia Coppola. A New York mother faced with sudden doubts about her marriage teams up with her larger-than-life playboy father to tail her husband. What follows is a comic journey across the city, starring Rashida Jones, Bill Murray, and Marlon Wayans. Go to fyc.appletvplus.com for more. From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. There's a scene in the middle of the movie, but there was an argument between two people, a shouting argument in the middle of it. And I thought that sort of, for me at the time, it was sort of horrifying because I was, you know, I just wasn't expecting anything like that in this filmmaking. You kind of don't necessarily want there to be like fisticuffs during your film. But actually afterwards I thought, well, that's sort of what it's supposed to do, really, this film, is it is supposed to make you feel, not answering any questions, I don't know the answer to any questions, none of us do, but it is supposed to make us all talk about it at least in a more candid way and men and women too i found that people discussing it it's not just women since its premiere at the sundance film festival in january audiences have been talking about promising young woman what writer director producer emerald Fennell didn't expect was for an actual fight to break out at a screening but then she realized it actually made perfect sense i'm janelle riley on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talked to Emerald Fennell and Carrie Mulligan about Promising Young Woman. Mulligan stars in the film a smart, darkly funny, and provocative thriller. It's the feature directorial debut of the multi-talented Fennell, an actor currently playing Camilla Parker Bowles on The Crown, and an Emmy-nominated writer and producer for Killing Eve. Later in the show, we also talked to The Five Bloods and Lovecraft Country star Jonathan Majors. But first, our awards roundtable looks at the 2021 director's race, the start of critics' awards season, and George Clooney's beard. It's all on this edition of Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Variety Awards Circuit Podcast. I'm Clayton Davis, film awards editor here today with Janelle Riley. Hey, we're talking really fast today. How's it going? Hey, Janet Sange. <laughs> Hello. Are we talking really fast? Oh, my God, I didn't know. Okay, fine. <laughs> and Michael Schneider. Hey, we're on the ones and twos right now. Let's get it going, Clayton Davis. You really missed your calling as a morning DJ. <laughs> yes, I did. That's a side I, note. I wanted to be Elvis Duran when I was a kid. I wanted to be him so bad. I wanted to be Elvis Duran when I grew up. Well, and look at us now. Look at us do, doing the podcast. It's almost like we're doing morning radio. So, and, and all this content, by the way, everyone's getting for free. People are not paying for this. They're getting some fresh content such as multiple podcasts. Last week, the very busy Clayton Davis had a talk with the one and only only George Clooney, Midnight Sky, out. Clayton, what was it like? So talking with George Clooney is just amazing because he's just a legend in his own right. But um, I, uh, Janelle Riley, I think Jazz too, I think we we seem to be, there's a split on the internet of Midnight Sky reaction. I'm surprised. I'm really uh, yeah. surprised. I Maybe it was because I went in with no expectations whatsoever that I was so surprised by how much I liked this movie. And, I, I, you know, people have, I guess, legitimate criticisms of it, but it, it, there is something about it that feels a little personal. 
I think this is his largest thing that he's ever made. I think it's the most personal. It's uh, it's gorgeous cinematography. I think Alexandre Desplat's score is maybe like the front runner now in that in that race. And I think I think it's just, I, I just think it's really really well. Like it's funny. I tweeted this out not to be coy and uh, throw shade, but I love doing that. People were like, "Oh, it's so slow." And the same people were like, Mank is amazing, and it's so exciting, and it just moves so fast. And I thought that was really interesting, like, of a comparison. Yeah, no, I went in, like, expect... I think I went in expecting to hate it, and that was the thing. I just was like, oh my gosh, there's nothing I kind of love about this movie, and, like, ten minutes in, I'm just sitting there mesmerized, and, as you said, Clayton, that score is probably one of Alexon's like top five scores if not i'm not ready to say it's like his top like his best ever but it is amazing um and just the cinematography and i love the dinner scene or the scene where he's sitting down with the peas i'm not gonna ruin it but i thought it was just the silence the silence of the of the movie is the beauty of it well, part of it is the the little girl doesn't talk, right? So, so is it? It's really just George Clooney talking to himself. She has one sentence the whole time, and that that uh, Clooney beard is also that that's some Oscar quality facial hair going on. Dude, that so. that beard is like hardcore. Like in that movie, like it, it, it's so big, it looks like it looks like it hurts. And like <laughs> I think as two bearded guys, like when you grow your beard too long, like it starts just like you want to rip it off your Itchy. face, like yeah. It must have have been the worst. Uh, Can I also say, though, um, I was really sold at the part uh, when I was speaking with Clooney when he talked about um, getting Desplat to do music to Dancing Blood. And everyone knows that sequence of what I'm talking about. Uh, That's seen seen in the movie, obviously. There's a sequence with blood in the spaceship, and it's so, so amazing, the music in it. So it's just an awesome... And listen, now, awards-wise, I always thought it was going to be a tech player. I wish it was going to be a bigger player, and I think that's where we'll land. I think we'll land in some tech races. Yeah, it's such an ensemble piece that um, it almost sort of, it's hard for any one person to stand out other than Clooney, who I actually think maybe, like, is it's a supporting role, I feel, to a certain extent. I feel like it's a true ensemble, and in lead, I think it's just going to be hard to, to get recognition. Now, not having seen it yet, is is it, it, it does it feel timely at all with the post apocalyptic aspect of it? Yes, I feel like this is our future. Maybe <laughs> like we <laughs> get our stuff together. Like, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of you know, there, there's something that you know, Clooney was talking about. You know, the way it became even more timely with COVID because of how we communicate or don't communicate with each other. You know, and and how we need to listen to one another. It, it, it's it's very timely in, in that in that aspect, but it's never preachy. Like I ne- I never felt like he was trying to hit me over the head with a message. I think it was just the, you know, the time. But but also big ups to him. Also, I know the story has floated around. Felicity Jones, who got pregnant uh, right before shooting. He wrote her pregnancy into the movie. I didn't know that because yeah. that's actually one of the parts of the movie I really, really like. He wrote that into the, well, not him. Uh, Mark L. Smith did the screenplay, but they decided to write it into the into into the movie. And I think it adds an. He says it made it even better, and I agree. I, I, if she wasn't pregnant, I feel like that story loses some stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. That's Midnight Sky coming soon to a theater near you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Actually, streaming platforms. It was shot in IMAX, which also must suck for Clooney. Yeah, by the way. that's such a bummer. Because yeah. God, that thing. Because you know, I was. By the way, I was able to see it on a big screen. I saw it in the Netflix uh, studio, and big screen. It, it looked really great. And then I saw it again at home, and I was like, "Oh, this misses something." I would love to see it on a big screen, but a good movie holds up on any. Yeah, true. True know. story. Yeah, I've, I've seen great movies on a three-inch screen in uh, in the sky. So. <laughs> Well, the, the, the visual is going back to them shooting in, in Iceland, right? I mean, it looks cold. I mean, it looks epic. 40 below, they said. And, you know, the you know having to dig a hole to, like, they could only shoot, like, certain times because it would, it, light would come out at 11 a.m. and then it would be dark by 3. They had, like, very little windows to do stuff. They, they, they shot on a glacier, which is crazy, too. Like, I've just, it's... Been banana and uh, Kaylin Springle, it's her first movie, The Little Girl. And it was like, anything after this, you're, it's, it's gonna be so easy for you. Like, it's gonna be in snow <laughs> or treacherous yeah, but you're weather. Not gonna, you're not gonna be sharing scenes with George Clooney, so maybe I it know, won't that, be as easy. And yeah. she's gonna have to learn lines eventually. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. This movie completes my trifecta of uh, Oscar winners starring with young children that they have to take care of who are virtually mute. Wow, that, that sounds like a Criterion collection in the making. <laughs> so we're going to a box set of News of the World, Midnight Sky, and uh, what's the other one? Let Him Go. Let Him Go. Um, so the critics have been mixed on this? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, it's it was the, the Twitter sphere, film Twitter, uh, seemed to be pretty split. There were people who liked it, and there were people who said it was boring and thought it was too slow. I, I don't, I, yeah, but Academy members are different. Uh, it's a different book. I mean, listen, Clooney is... One of only three people that have been nominated in six uh, Oscar categories. Walt, Walt Disney and Alfonso Cuarón were are the other two. Wow. So he's well liked in the Academy. I think he's you can't count him out even when a film is like you know teetering. But I think like I said I think it's a tech player. Well, speaking of critics, and I do this because Janelle loves the transitions. Um, it is it is critic award season. Clayton uh, set set the stage. Ah, so this weekend we got, uh, and time, we have to say time of recording is Monday. So uh, New York is announcing on the 18th, uh, which is after the episode will be released. But we had Boston uh, Society of Film Critics Awards give out their uh, best of the year, and they followed the calendar year. And they went nomad land in three categories picture, director, and cinematography. Uh, kicking it off for Chloe Zhao and the film in general. Uh, Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor over Chadwick Boseman, which I think is likely to happen a lot during the Critics Awards. I think they'll be splitting, kind of going back and forth. But Riz Ahmed was a, a runner-up there for Sound of Metal, which was very interesting. Uh, Paul Racy won Supporting Actor for Sound of Metal, which made the internet very, very happy. Hmm. Yep, he's making some noise. He's make, He reminds me of, uh, my comparison, he reminds me of John Hawk. Uh, when he got oh. nominated for Winter's Bone. Wow. I think of that moment. I'm like, this could be that type of nomination. So I wonder if SAG is coming down the pike. The biggest surprise came in Best Actress. They went for 21-year-old Sydney Flanagan uh, for Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, her first movie. And for Boston, they have a cool kind of correlation to Oscar. You have to go back to 2008 uh, when Sally Hawkins uh, won for Happy Go Lucky for one of their winners to not translate to Oscar attention, which, you know, it's a long season. We have five more months to go, but, you know, we have to see if this starts uh, adding up down the line. But 
That was a, it was a good get for her. And Yu Jung Yoon? Yay! For Minari, <laughs> supporting actress, we have Grandma in the Oscar race. Thank God. Do not snub Grandma this year. <laughs> I'm still bitter over the farewell. They did it. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, it does seem like people are responding really positively to Minari and to her performance, to all the performances, and I'm, I'm so, so thrilled for it. Yeah, Minari also won score. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom won ensemble cast. Uh, Florian Zeller won Best New Filmmaker uh, for The Father. And then I'm thinking of Ending Things won two awards for film editing and screenplay. So watch out. Maybe Charlie Kaufman's back in this uh, race. Oh, wow. Well, speaking of Chloe Zhao, she is clearly the front runner right now on the director race. Pretty exciting. Yeah. I'm excited because there's so many great directors and there's a lot of percolating diversity. You know, who knows how things will pan out, but I'm obviously a big fan of Minari, uh, Lee Isaac Chung. Um, I see you have him in your top five, Clayton, which makes me very happy. Regina King as well. Um, oh, can I just say, by the way, I learned how to say it. We've been saying it wrong for a long yes, time. Yes, I was, it's, about, it's, I was going to correct it. It's Minari, not Minari. Minari. Because we're because yeah. t- we're, we're stupid Americans and we can't say things correctly <laughs> the whole time. Well, we also have a colleague whose name is Minori, so I think maybe that's thrown us off a little <laughs> Excellent. bit. Excellent, right? <laughs> love it. Shout out to Minori, international editor. She's the best. Extraordinaire, amazing. I really thought this was a movie about her, and I'm I so was. That's I'm very disappointed to learn it's not about her. <laughs> but that's that's a side. Uh, yeah, I love that you said that, um, uh, Janelle. That it's so dynamic and so diverse. For one, it's going to be a very young kind of lineup. And when I say young, young both in terms of age and in the amount of films that have been made between uh, the the group. Chloe Zhao is on her third film. Regina King and Florian Zeller are on their first. Uh, Lee Isaac Chung, I think he's on his third? I think this is his fourth, but don't quote me on that. Uh, David Fincher is probably the most seasoned uh, with 11. Um, But Sorkin has uh, is, is his second. Shaka King second, Emerald Fennell, uh, her first, you know, and, and, you know, Spike Lee obviously has, has a lot too, but it's, it's, it, it's going to be a very, it's, it's a, it's a very different looking race, but I wonder because Promising Young Woman seems to be having a moment right now. I don't oh yeah. kind of gauges that. What if, shocker, there are three women in Best Director? I mean, I would have no problem with that. I mean, not <laughs> exactly. Two of my favorite films this year were directed by Asian women because I also love the half of it. Alice Wu, right? Yeah, I think Alice Wu is is so unbelievably talented, and it just it just thrills me a little bit, you know, to 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 see those names up there. Kelly Reichardt also making some noise. Yeah, because she, uh, she was uh, first cow was the runner up in picture, and uh, and she was runner up in director yesterday. So yeah, and there's people who want a Kelly Reichardt nomination. She's been around for a while. Um, but yeah, and I, and I think we also should say, I think it's important to say just for people who are going to write this undoubtedly and be dumb about it is this year is not a woke year in terms of like, that's why the women are in contention. Like women actively are making the best films of the year this year. And it is also happening at a moment where people are looking for diversity. So both those things can be true and, and coexist. So I think uh, Chloe, Chloe Zhao, Emerald Fennell, and Regina King are definitely the top three of the females in the, in the race, but I would not count out, like, you know, the Kelly Reicherts and stuff. 
Um, I was on a podcast or on a video with uh, Ann Thompson of IndieWire. I was going to say, are you cheating on us, Clayton? Yeah. It was was a gold derby. It was was their their, uh, slugfest. Um, And she believes that maybe Mank is not the contender that we think it is. And I absolutely think there's a huge possibility that David Fincher does not get nominated. So Fincher could drop out and make room for Emerald Fennel. Like that's, I could see that happening. That would, uh, I mean, listen, I, I like it, it would surprise me, but it wouldn't like, there's like two things like they're like, that would mean like the old older Academy, which I think this is made for either. They're like getting drowned out or they're just not into it. And I don't, I don't know which one of those it is, or maybe it is a little bit of both. Well, I think Fincher still has a strong shot because, you know, the director's branch is fans of his and his movie is kind of unlike anything else in the running and he's David Fincher. But I don't think that we should be assuming he's the safe bet. Like I I would tell those people who are fans of the movie to make sure that your voices are heard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you do you think maybe that that older uh, Academy crowd that would naturally be into Mank uh, are turned off by the Netflix of it? Could could that sort of counter balance? No, I think the Netflix bias thing, like I think it still exists, but I don't think it's as loud as it was. I think just I I said this before. I do think that when the reactions came and then the reviews came, I think some critics were pulling their punches it seemed like that and i I don't know why i mean i think there's some people who did like actively like it and think it was great but i think there were some people that just were not because they started praising the sound design very loudly Mm. (laughs) (laughs) i had a friend who asked me i had a friend who asked me if mink was good and i was like yeah like why do you ask and they're like you know, I'm just sort of concerned when I start seeing people going on about the glorious sound design mm-hmm. and, you know, the beautiful look and, and not giving me much more than that. Right, right. I like I like the idea of it when, when they start yes, using the codes. Yes, but that is exactly <laughs> how I feel about it. I like the idea of Mank because 10 minutes in, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to love this. This is going to be my favorite mo- movie of all time. And then it continued. I was like, it's not. <laughs> it's, 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 it, it, was, it was a chore, you know? And I, and, and, and I also am hearing a lot of people say, you really need to give it another shot. You need to watch it again. And I think that is troublesome when you're forcing me to have to watch something again to appreciate Well, is, is anyone forcing you? Have you been well, strapped no, down no. to your chair think, and your eyes that's right the open? Cell. Like, watch it again. <laughs> give it another shot and you'll like it more. Academy members aren't going to do that. They're not going to. But then in contrast then, like Nomadland on the first watch is stunning. It's an incredible film. You don't need to sell people to watch it again. Like you get exactly what Chloe Zhao is is saying with her movie. Speaking of Netflix bias, how was that for a Michael Schneider segue? There you segue? go, Janelle. Um, <laughs> someone we're not talking about that maybe we're underestimating, maybe not. Um, nobody's talking about Christopher Nolan who, you know, is probably my favorite director working today. Uh, Tenet just kind of, you know, it, it's it's so delicate to talk about because it feels like the, the movie made a lot of money, and yet there's still sort of this perception that it didn't or something. And he did some incredible stuff in that movie. And are we underestimating that? Or I, I don't even know if it's being pushed. I mean, Warner Brothers might be mad at him. I, th- I think it is being pushed, whatever that means right now for Warner Brothers. But um, I actually just saw it this weekend, finally, because cause I, got, cause I got sent the Blu-ray, so I didn't 
I didn't go to a movie theater to die to watch it. So I watched it at home. Um, I would say if you can get past the story, technically speaking, I think the movie uh, is a technical feat. I think much like Fincher, I think it falls in that boat. And I will always say that Tenet got unfairly beat up in the media because somebody had to go first. Tenet just went first. And that and that's what happened. People thought you could open. Tenet proved that we couldn't, really. But it still made $300 million. That's like, the thing. It was a hit. <laughs> it, it's, it's fine in that regard. And this pandemic year, like, good for you. But uh, in terms of the director race, I think it could be. Because so if, if I'm reading the room right of uh, studios, a lot of people don't want streamers to win because they're so oversaturated. And if you want to rally behind a studio film, then Tenet could be one that you, you rally behind just to support studios in the conversation still. Yeah. I mean, I think Hoyt, I think Hoyt Van Hoytema would be a fine cinematographer uh, nominee. I saw also sense you correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not always great at reading the room, but um, it seems like people are really um, responding positively to Christopher Nolan standing up for creatives in the HBO Max deal, yeah, that could do that could do a lot of good for him down yeah. the line. Yeah, no, he's got a lot of goodwill right now in the industry. I'm, I'm very surprised that everyone came out as much as they did, though. With, with that. oh, like, shocked. Den- Denny Villeneuve, uh, Nolan, like everyone, like did what you know, whatever that means in the industry. You know, for, you know what if that's going to tilt the scale or change people's minds up that remains to be said you know but i think more so than we have to remember we're going to come back from christmas break it's going to be january 2nd and we're all going to look at each other and say normally we'd be oscar voting but right now we're doing nothing for the next two months and what are we doing and by we i also mean oscar voters like what are they doing are they really taking the time to watch as much as possible or are they just like what like yeah, it's going to be very unknown. It's going to be uncharted water. Uncharted waters. I mean, say that five times fast. <laughs> yeah, conceivably <laughs> that that gives everyone more time to watch everything, right? Conceivably, yes. Will they use their time wisely? Because if they do, because if they, yeah, if they do, then Equa Masangi is a, a director nominee for Farewell or More because that means they watched it. But I am also not, you know, giving my hopes up to God. Go ahead, Jess, I'm sorry. I was going to say, do we think Darius Mader is going to get some love for Santa Metal? Like, is that like a fifth slot dark horse? I hope so. Santa Metal's, uh, he, he, the, the movie's also having a moment right now. Darius Mader also sound like, looks like a sound, huh? Sounds like maybe a, a lone director spot, like Bennett Miller for Foxcatcher, Mike Lee for Vera Drake, who, that the film doesn't get in Best Picture. But he makes the final five in, in the end because it is a, a, a very, you know, directorial achievement. You know, the, he had a vision on how he wanted this to be made and he, he succeeds 10 times. Over. I think similarly about Pieces of a Woman. Like we know Vanessa Kirby and Ellen Burstyn are definitely going to get shots. We don't know so much about Best Picture, but that film is definitely, you know, the, the director has his stamp on it. I'm not going to say his name right now, Cornell, because I don't want to butcher it and be embarrassed <laughs> later. Cornell Mondrosco, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As he screams at us from beyond. <laughs> that's not how you say my name. Well, Mike, can I ask you something real quick? In comparison, 
with Emmys, what was your, be- I, I, I spoke, you know, this, I wasn't here yet, but I remember speaking to some Emmy voters about what they were doing at the time. Were they really utilizing their time to watch everything that they were supposed to with that, like, you know, being at home? There, at least that was the conventional wisdom that maybe, I mean, there, there was a couple of nominations. What we do in the shadows was one that a lot of people said, oh, people had time to watch that. So that's how it snuck in. But you, you never know. Are, are they doing that or were they rewatching Tiger King three times in a row? Who, who knows for sure? But I, I, ideally, it's it would get... The Mandalorian too, right? Yeah, you can, yeah. You can say The Mandalorian too, right? Because that got in. Yeah, I, actually, that... The, Maybe that means we're just, we're going to get something really weird in the lineups. I hope so. It'd be fun. Yeah. Will there be – what about is there still a, a fan favorite that can sneak in, sort of a, a popcorn movie? And maybe that brings us to Wonder Woman 1984 and, and rounding out that and conversation. Which also ties into Mandalorian because <laughs> Wonder Woman 1984 has a great performance by Pedro Pascal um, playing the complete opposite of the Mandalorian, playing a sniveling coward, and I kind of love it. And Patty and Jenkins is, Patty, yeah, oh, oh, Clayton, you and I, we're, yeah, mind melt, my, mind melt. Uh, she, she's directing one of the new Star Wars uh, shows for, for uh, Disney Plus as well. So. Excuse me, it's a film, Rogue Squadrons. <laughs> you want to own TV. It's all TV. Even though Disney Plus did make it sound like the whole world is on TV. They did now, make so it sound like it was a, a, a series, <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I, uh, what, I don't know. I, I it was hard to read the tweets that weren't so over hyperbolic and overbearing. Like I saw this as I saw a comparison to the empire strikes back and I wanted to die. So like, I, I don't know where we are there. Um, but I will say, can we talk about some late breakers? We just got announced today. Uh, land from Robin Wright. She's making a directorial debut. That's coming into the race. Uh, the Tom and Jerry movie from Warner Brothers is now in the race. And we uh, there's been rumors all and we're still expecting to see Judas and the Black Messiah, obviously, and the little things from John Lee Hancock, which is supposed to be a return, uh, which was very different than what he's done before. I love John Lee Hancock. He always delivers, in my opinion. Yeah. Supposedly uh, Denzel and uh, Jared Leto deliver very Strong performances, but I haven't seen it yet, so that's completely like just hearsay. Be interesting to see what the New York film critics come out with on the 18th because they always throw like a random film that like nobody suspects into their yeah, they're like, Hey, we saw this just so you know, <laughs> we saw this, and this is what we're gonna do, and we're just gonna throw your predictions around. For, like, listen, they were the same, they were the same group that did uh Tiffany Haddish and Girl Strip, they started that and, and Regina Hall and support the girls. So they, they can go left field sometimes. I mean, listen, Boston might have beat them to the punch. I think they were probably thinking of, um, of Sidney Flanagan. But I, I would watch for something small, maybe like uh, Carrie Coon in The Nest. Mm, that I like. Or an Elizabeth Moss in Shirley. Or a Julia Garner in The Assistant, because she was also the runner-up. I think to Rachel. Yeah, I can very much see that too. Yeah. So I'd be happy with those. Three fantastic television performers. Mike, what are you hoping for? Mandalorian (laughs) and best best picture. (laughs) I would take Mandalorian as best picture. What are you saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Queen's Gambit for your consideration. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Ooh, also, I can share here now, uh, Promising Young Woman submitted comedy at the Golden Globes. Uh, I mean... It wouldn't be my call, but it's a it's a dark comedy. It's a dark comedy. It's very very dark. I rewatched it this weekend. It, there are a lot more chuckles than I remember. It's where it ends is why it's like you're like, eh. but it, I think it's the right call. And I I and I feel so icky saying this. I want Bo Burnham to get nominated. I love him in it so much. He's so a good. A lot of people have been saying that, and he is so good in that. Big tall tree. Yeah. <laughs> No, the whole cast is great. It's it's such a great movie. With that, Promising Young Woman got a little conversation with Janelle Riley and Carrie Mulligan and Emerald Fennell. Yes, and I just realized that um, her name is pronounced Emerald Fennell. I asked because I'm tempted to say Fennell, and I thought maybe I was just putting that twist on it because, you know, my name's Janelle. And and then I realized if we got married, my name would be Janelle Fennell. So, marry her, so you get it. But I didn't know she was British until we had the cover video with her. Oh, you're kidding. Did you know she oh was on the crown? Oh, my I had no idea she was British. I thought she, was, I thought she might have been just an Wait, she's accent. Camilla in the crown, Clinton. She's brilliant on the crown. I, 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 it did, you know, just the connect the dots thing, you know? Did you know that Catherine O'Hara was in Beetlejuice and Schitt's Creek? <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> And Home Alone. Did you know she's in Heartburn? Oh my god, I completely forgot that. And I was showing Jen Heartburn for the first time like a couple of months ago. And I was like, oh, that's Catherine O'Hara in Heartburn. Like, I just had to All stop. right, so apropos, apropos of nothing, give all the awards to Catherine O'Hara, even if she's not in sure. it. Just, just give give everything <laughs> to her this year. For her past work. Exactly. My, Mike, can, Mike, can I ask you, last question as a, as a parent. My my daughter asked me, because we were watching Schitt's Creek, and, and she wanted to know like how... Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy worked together. I was like, well, they were in a bunch of movies with Christopher Guest. And she was like, can I watch those movies? And I, and I don't know. No, they're they're very mild. And like the stuff that is to a toll will go you over You think she'll head. get it? No, that's the thing. I don't think... That's the thing. I don't, I, it's so dry and it's such a subtle parody that you have to sort of have like understand what they're parodying. So, because I thought about this too, honestly, I was going to show them best in show, but I started watching and I realized they're just going to be bored by this. They're not going to get the dry humor. They're just going to be, what's, what, what is this? Also, they go back further than the Christopher Guest movies. They were in Second City TV together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause I was thinking about maybe showing her four year consideration. Cause maybe she'll like think it's funny. Cause that's kind of like what I do. But then I was like, yeah, maybe not. That might actually be the, the, the one that's most not for kids. If that makes sense. I think best in show is a good place to start when they're ready. I'll decide. I'll let you guys know next week. On the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In the meantime, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. 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 It's variety's award circuit podcast. I'm Janelle Riley. In the new film, Promising Young Woman, Oscar nominee Carrie Mulligan plays Cassandra, a woman who dropped out of medical school following a personal tragedy and who now goes to bars pretending to be drunk to see which men might try to take advantage of her. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? In choosing to play the role, Mulligan referenced her past roles in period pieces, joking that she had long been wanting to not wear a corset in a film. After reading the script, she says she had not seen anything like it, and that it both terrified her and also made her laugh. 
In her directorial debut, Emerald Fennell, who also wrote the screenplay, explores delicate subject matter regarding sexual assault and the constant threat women face. But it's also a dark comedy with Bo Burnham, Alison Brie, Laverne Cox, and Connie Britton in supporting roles. And as Variety's Clayton Davis exclusively reported, the film has been submitted to the Golden Globes in the comedy or musical category. I recently spoke to Mulligan and Fennell about Promising Young Woman, but I began by asking Fennell if the film spun out of any wild revenge fantasy she might have had. I guess. You know, it must have sort of come from that place somewhere. But I think the way that I tend to write in general is that usually a kind of scene or a moment will kind of appear and then the the thing becomes built around that moment. And for me, it was that moment when Cassie, when, you know, somebody takes a drunk girl home and then as they're taking her clothes off, she reveals she's not drunk. And And I guess it seemed to me to be the perfect kind of distillation of an argument that I think women certainly have been talking about for millennia, probably, which is if you don't think you're doing something bad, why do you feel uncomfortable if that thing is questioned or interrogated in any way? Mm. And, And I suppose, so it kind of was born out of that, but really I wanted to write kind of modern, like, kind of, I guess, Western almost, with a real woman right at the centre, you know, and a story about a a woman who was refusing to do what sort of society and our culture tells you to do, which is kind of get over it. And this is somebody who can't. And and I wanted to kind of look at what what happens really to your life. It's not kind of necessarily sexy and fun and thrilling. It's it's terrible and it's dark and it's a choice and so so yeah it kind of started from I suppose what would it look like if a real woman really wanted to enact revenge Mm -hmm. and I know that you know based on your novels and obviously your your tv writing um I don't know if you can help yourself from making things kind of you know, darkly funny. Um, and I appreciate that we need that tone in this movie, but was that always the intent from the beginning to sort of, you know, um, I guess have this sort of release through laughter and in, in this dark comedy? I think so. I mean, it's sort of deliberate and not. I, I, think, I think for lots of people, and probably you included, when, when I find when I write, it sort of just is what it is. I, I've, I stopped a while ago trying to make it you know, a different type of thing. And so I suppose that's sort of the tone maybe of my sort of personality, I suppose, macabre. But but also the films that I really love, you know, films like To Die For and Dogtooth and, you know, even the movies that I grew up watching, which probably weren't age appropriate, like Labyrinth and Welcome to the Dollhouse. These kinds of movies that had this kind of starkness, but this kind of malevolent beauty. Um, and I, I think life is funny. And I think the, the more horrifying it is, the funnier it is. And I think that's just, you know, that is a way for all of us to survive. And it feels particularly pertinent now. I mean, I don't think comedy has ever been more acidic and um, important than mm-hmm. it is now. And Carrie, for you, what attracted you to the role of Cassie? I'm, I'm sort of curious what your reaction was when you read the script. Oh, gosh, sort of everything. I think, you know, I'd long been wanting to not wear a corset in a film. <laughs> that was a massive career goal of mine. Um, 
No, I mean, I, you know, I was definitely looking to do some, something new, some new writing, something that wasn't an adaptation. So I was like, even before I'd opened the first page, the idea of doing something contemporary and um, was really exciting. Um, but I just had never read anything like it and I had not seen anything like it. And I just didn't even know where to put it. And it sort of terrified me and also made me laugh. And also I read it sort of all in one go, sort of manic. And I remember starting to read it on an iPad and then I got distracted by something that I had to do with the kids. And then would, I was just reading it standing in the kitchen, sort of ignoring my children because I just couldn't still kind of put it down. Um, and I, I sort of have a gut instinct when it comes to work and it's either it's pretty much most of the time either like 100% yes or like no and it was just such an immediate yes and I immediately went from like not really knowing anything about it to if anybody else plays this part I'll be desperately sad for years and years to come so I just suddenly was it just completely blew me away. Have you often felt that way about a script where you were like it had to be me it has to be me or um, is is that rare for you? No, uh, well, I mean, I don't make a huge amount of films for that reason that I sort of like waiting. I, I, I'm very, I've, you know, I've told the story a million times, I think, but basically, you know, when an education came out and it had the reception that it had, which was completely bewildering to me because I had not expected anything like that. I had my agent who's been my agent since I was 18 said, look, you're in this really rare moment who M knows of M knows Tor Belfridge because she worked for her as an assistant a million years ago. Um, but Tor said, look at you, you know, you're in this rare bit of your career and it won't last forever and you should really take advantage of it. And, and so don't take a part unless you can't bear the idea of anybody else doing it. Mm. And so that was sort of after, right before I did Never Let Me Go. And then from then on, it's sort of, pretty much been the case for um almost everything I've done since then so but it does mean waiting around a lot but then it does make it all the richer when the job does come in that's the one that you can't bear to miss so you mentioned uh being happy to get out of corsets and I just have to give a shout out to the costumes and actually the hair and makeup I I, I've already said this publicly but whoever did your nails deserves an award Yes, well, Angie, who, I mean, Carrie had worked on Mudbound with, is just the greatest hair, uh, greatest makeup designer in the world. And she, you know, I was always very specific um, about how I wanted Cassie to look. I think that there's this really common misconception that when we're sad, we look sad. I just do not believe it to be the case. I think there's, you know, even economically, it's one of those famous things when there's a recession, lipstick goes up. It's it's that I think women are very used to responding to hard times by trying to kind of cover it up, make things pretty, make things nice. And for me, I found, I mean, look, hang on, can you see my manicure? It's a kind of iridescent, pearlescent. Oh, I 90s, love it. 90s porn nails. And the thing is for me is I, Cassie's nails, I think are so much an emblem of who she is. They're, cover you know if your hands do the dirty work for you what a kind of cunning way of disguising that dirty work and in general I have found with my own you know <laughs> life fashion makeup choices people don't take you not seriously that sounds like very kind of ridiculous and as though they should take me seriously or anyone seriously but but you know if you have nails like Cassie does people think they know who you are and what you are and so it's a really interesting thing and so like why not look girly and fun what, what what would that possibly reflect about who you are inside so yeah but anyway but sorry 
Angie is incredible. And Nancy Steiner, who did the costumes, who, you know, me and Kerry just couldn't, we were just so thrilled because she, you know, she did the Virgin Suicide. She did Twin Peaks. She's like beyond. It was incredible. It looked like a hard manicure to maintain though, because each nail is a different color and it's very specific. It's kind of this rainbow effect. Um, I'm curious if you, uh, did you, did you go out? I mean, you probably didn't change it. You know, when you were done shooting, you would go out in the, in the, for the rest of your day uh, with those nails. Did you find that people treated you differently? Well, I had the very long hair for the whole shoot and I had the nails um, and the nails were solid for about the first three weeks. And then like right towards the end, I just started losing them and we'd be in the middle of the take and I'd be like, oh shit, blue's gone. We've lost blue. And then it would have have to stop and like someone would have to come and glue my blue finger back on. Um, But to be honest, we shot the whole thing in what, um, 23 days? Yeah, we didn't have any time off. <laughs> I mean, no, any time off, I was just with my kids. So, um, but they were perplexed by it. They couldn't understand. My children, one of my youngest, learnt colours on my fingernails. It's one of my kind of fondest memories of it was that he was learning what pink was and yellow, and because he was in that phase where you know they think everything is yellow. Um, but he, yeah, he learnt different colours on my fingernails and the hair. My daughter was just like, "This is the greatest thing ever. Mummy's a princess." Like. It was fantastic. So it went down really well at home. I was going to say 23 days. I mean, that is that is a short time to shoot, but it's actually perfect because that's that's about how long a manicure lasts. So <laughs> maybe you, you got out just in time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, aside from the physical appearance, I'm, I'm curious how not only, Carrie, how you prepared for this part, but Emerald, maybe if there was special research you put into writing the script, I mean... I think we can all agree that the sad truth is is probably every woman has a story to share. Um, and I don't know where you where you even began. Well, I think it's it's kind of it's an interesting one that because for me the the thing once I realised what promising young women I suppose was going to be one of the things the commitments I made was there is going to be no nothing no thing no incident that happens here between you know the kind of the Cassie and the men that she meets um, that we haven't seen on like TV shows or movies, like co- comically in the last 10, 15 years. So, so a lot of these things, if you turn them around, th- this could be any kind of comedy movie or TV show we've seen, you know? And so I said to all of the, you know, actors coming in, um, you think you're in a romantic comedy. You're the hero of a romantic comedy. You're cute. You're saving this gorgeous girl from a bar. She laughs at a joke. Maybe you're hitting this off. You know, does it matter? Do we notice that she speaks? You know, female characters often don't speak very much in these kinds of films, <laughs> any kind of film. So uh, I suppose it had to come from there. It had to come from a place of actually people... When I was pitching the movie, people would say, God, this stuff is so terrible. You know, I can't believe people would ever like not remember these things happening. And you're like, really? Because, I mean, I don't know what planet you're living on, but this is stuff that just like happens all the time that people joked about all the time. Anyway, but so as for Carrie's preparation, I, I can't speak to it. She's just a genius. Um, well, that was it, really. I just relied on my inherent genius. And, um, <laughs> yeah, well, we, I mean, you know, the majority of this was really just, you know, conversation with Emerald. It wasn't, a, I mean, I feel like, you know, it's it's a very, there are parts of this that are really serious subject matter and uh, and it's important to to sort of 
understand the story that we're telling. But in a lot of ways, as Em said, like so much of this is exactly what we grow up with. And as women, you know, you share and sadly hear stories about the majority of this all the time. And um, in those stories that I, you know, didn't feel close to anybody else through um, any kind of suffering for the the purpose of making, telling a story or, or doing, you know, making a film. Um, and so I didn't want to speak to anyone who'd been through any, I don't sort of feel that's really my place, but um, I found uh, there was a, a John Krakow book called Missoula, which I found really uh, helpful just because sometimes it's really important to have somebody else articulate um, something and it sometimes that just sticks in your head and is so helpful and there was this story in Missoula and um, and he interviewed the best friend of the victim and I think that was sort of really it just you know was so resonant this the, the the sort of guilt that this girl felt completely unjustified guilt that she felt for her friend having been through something and the impact that it had on her years later that really stayed with me um, but no, it was really just so much of this was figuring out, you know, what the relationship was that she lost and who her friend was and what she meant to her. And I think Em and I talked about, you know, a lot of this just being really a, something that came from a really deep love, like the love that you have for your best, best, best friend when you're growing up and, um, and what you would do to defend her. Um, so it was kind of, it was, it wasn't really a sort of, prep I didn't learn to ride a horse or anything it was sort of <laughs> I mean really just, there were all those horse scenes that we had to cut no it was a disappointment but you know I had to eat hot dogs in the movie I practiced eating some hot dogs making it look cool um <laughs> I wish I'd got we, we should have built that into the rehearsal schedule Carrie's hot hot dog eating <laughs> just you bring up guilt um and I want to talk about guilt but I also want to talk about forgiveness because you have a wide variety of characters in this film, some who don't harbor any guilt over their actions, some who are you know, destroyed by it. You really see how it affects all sorts of different people. Um, and without getting too spoilery, uh, you have some characters who I think are able to forgive themselves um, you know, by the end of this movie or, or you know, at, at least come to peace with it. Do you think forgiveness is possible for everyone? Well, I suppose... Such an interesting question. I mean, yes, in theory. I wanted to approach this, and I've used the reference, like, I guess a bit before, but um, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which actually came out after I'd written this and everything, but I thought that it there was a kind of allegorical Greek, sort of Greek tragedy element to that movie, which is much more oblique and so clever and wonderful, but it made me feel something kind of primal. And I think, for me, I guess, you know, Cassandra in the, in the film is called Cassandra for a reason, just, you know, named after the kind of Greek heroine. Um, but yes, in theory, of course, everyone should have forgiveness ab- available to them. There's no, there's no point in going on. None of us have clean hands. None of us, if all of the, if the 10 worst things all of us had ever thought or did, you know, were the things that we had, that, that were the things that defined us, we would all be kind of in the mire together. And so I think, yes, there has to be forgiveness. We absolutely cannot have forgiveness without confession or without an apology. And that is what Cassie is looking for. She is on a journey where she offers forgiveness or she offers punishment. And those things are the person she's 
you know, the person she's talking to decides which one they get. She's kind of in many ways a completely um, impartial person. She presents it and then they choose. And I think that for me, I didn't ever want to make a movie where forgiveness wasn't possible. It is possible. And I, th I hope that that's clear, but people don't ask for it because they don't want to admit. Mm. I mean, every single role is cast so brilliantly. You have Alison Brie, Connie Britton, um, Bo Burnham, who's so fantastic. Uh, where did you even start? I assume it began with Carrie? It started with Carrie. The whole thing did. I think it was, it's impossible to imagine anyone else doing it. It would have been a completely different film. I think Carrie is exceptional in a way that even I thought I knew before we started working together because I've seen all of her work, but actually I had I hadn't kind of comprehended how how much of a genius she was, um, and so to have her at the heart of this, being grounding this thing, this kind of allegorical thing into something completely real, and and being determined to make Cassie a real person in that she often does things that aren't likable, that are hard, that are difficult to comprehend. You know, people who've been through stuff often aren't victims in the way that we want them to be victims, that is satisfying, you know, to us as viewers. And, sh and that, in, that is all Carrie that she kind of didn't want to prettify. She might look gorgeous, but she didn't want to make the bones of Cassie, you know, perfect. And so in terms of that, it was just casting all of those people that I trust and feel familiar with as a viewer, often that I've grown up with, you know, someone like Adam Brody is somebody that women of my age all grew up with. Bo is somebody that, you know, walks into a room and you're like, oh, well, I'd, you know, I'd like to be your best friend, please, forever. You know, I would trust you to babysit my children, even though I've just met you five minutes ago. Those are the people that, you know, it's not the kind of people wearing a cape, twirling a moustache who come into your life, ever. It's, you can only make the audience complicit if you present them with people that they love, doing stuff they don't love. But I mean, Carrie will be able to talk about it much more interestingly about working with them. No, not at all. I thought that was such a clever, I remember you saying that before we even started sort of seriously talking about, you know, who the ideas were and the idea of these people that you sort of see on screen and immediately feel totally comfortable with I thought was just so brilliant um but yeah I mean what I mean when we met Bo in LA we I was out there for wildlife and um was lucky enough to have two days in LA and and came in and, and Bo and I did some a scene a couple of scenes together and he walked out the room and Emerald and I were both just just in love with him and we just immediately knew that we wanted to spend as much time as possible he's just the most wonderful person and it was so it was very funny working with Bo though because we would be making the film and Bo would come in and do little bits and so every time he came in we were making this like delightful romantic comedy and then he would go away and we'd um and then you know we'd jump around in order and so he would be received very differently uh, one day to the next and um, but uh, no, I mean the cast is amazing. Like Jennifer Coolidge is a complete genius. It, I mean, the, in the truest sense of the word, I've never the biggest struggle of my entire acting career was being at a dinner table, acting a scene with Bo and Jennifer Coolidge and Clancy Brown, and and not ruining it by laughing through every single take because it was just the funniest, funniest improvisation I've ever. It was so brilliant. I mean, they're just amazing. That's something I'm so curious about because obviously you're dealing with some heavy subject matter, but were you able to have levity on set? Sounds like you were. 
I mean, I think, well, I can't speak for Carrie or for the other actors, but I think for me, it was really important, particularly since we had such a short amount of time to shoot. And, you know, we were often, we had people coming in to do really hard stuff um, for a day. And, you know, and I know, having been an actress, what it's like to come onto a set and you don't know anyone, you don't know anyone's name, you're expected to just pull something out of the bag. So it had to feel like, I, I want, uh, the idea, the hope was to make it such a kind of comfortable, fun, cosy environment that people could feel like, you know, they could just like mess around up to a point by which I mean like, you know, that they could, they would feel confident trying something um, even if it was, it felt a bit off kilter. And I think if you, you just have to have fun. Otherwise, I don't know, it's too hard. It's too hard a job. I, I, think, I think you've got to make people feel comfortable. At the same time, being in Cassie's mindset probably isn't, you know, fun to do for long periods of time. Um, Carrie, are you the, the kind of actor who sort of takes your work home with you um, at the end of the day? Or are you able to sort of like leave her at the door? No, definitively not. No, I don't take it home at all. I mean, I, you know, I think I probably used to when I was younger, when I was starting out, but um, no, I mean, I carry home like, ah, oh, man, I didn't, you know, do that the way I wanted it to, or, we, you know, that wasn't the way that I imagined that scene should go. I should have done this or that, but I don't, I don't go home in, and I think part of the reason that Em and I get on so well and why we enjoy working together so much is that we both have a pretty similar philosophy of like, you know, we love our jobs, but we also feel completely privileged to do something that's really fun and get paid to do it. And in that sense, I think, you know, I, I love acting and even the worst stuff in the film, when it went well, I walked away feeling really great. I don't walk away feeling like I'm still. So I, I think it's this sort of taking off that thing at the end of the day and, you know, going home and watching America's Ninja Warrior and and also just I I, because I think it's really hard to maybe define how you you act in particular Carrie because if I may be so bold um it's so in the room I think what you find with people who are exceptional is that so much of acting is just being there it's not necessarily, and, and everyone is different. That's not to say there are so many different routes. There's no right answer. But for Carrie, it's really interesting to watch because the thing is, is that she's just there and she's just Cassie. She's just in the character. And so whatever anything else, whatever happens, whatever anyone else does, a car could come in and crash into the set and she would just be Cassie. So it meant that you know she's just, it's a completely, instinctive makes it feel like it's not, instinctive kind of feels like a, a, a lessening term but it's not it's that I have no way to describe it except to say there are a few people that I've been very like privileged to watch where I think oh can I swear of course <laughs> it's encouraged you know fuck this is it she's just that person you know and you get there's some Josh O'Connor is another person there are so many but Josh O'Connor who, who plays Prince Charles in the Crown you know He's another person like that when you just, you you watch and you think, okay, this is something, this is a kind of, if such a thing exists, a God-given talent. This person can just do this. They're on some kind of thing. And, and that's why it's such a pleasure to work with Carrie because she turns up, she's the most delightful person you've ever met. Everyone on set wants to marry her. Um, she's just good, fun, glorious. And then suddenly she's not there at all. It's like being possessed. Mm. She's like a possessed person. (laughs) 
In a good way. That's a compliment. (laughs) Absolutely in a good way. I know that all movies are personal to some extent, to probably to a large extent. Um, When this film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, it was very much the talk of the town. And I feel like specifically with the subject matter you're dealing with, especially in the place we are today, where I feel like people are finally paying attention to some extent, um, the reaction was so overwhelming, just from my perspective, you know. 300 miles away. Um, I have to imagine people really want to talk to you about this film and they probably share very personal stories. Um, what is that like? And, and were you prepared for that? God, that's such an interesting question. Um, I don't think, oh God, you can't ever hope for that. The thing is, is that I was just amazed even to have been able to make this film with the kinds of people that I made it with who I have admired for so long from afar. So that in and of itself was just so extraordinary to me that the idea that people would even watch it, that it would be somewhere like Sundance, that, you know, it would have the kind of response it's had is so uh, shocking and profoundly amazing to me. Yes, people are very candid, but I think in a funny way, people, I suppose... I suppose it's an unspoken thing that women have always had. There's always the kind of people talk about whisper networks, but it's not even as much as that often. It's just a sort of an innate understanding of something I think that we all share. And, and people do share things, of course. And am I prepared for it? Yes and no. I mean, you know, I'm very, I find it very moving. I don't know if Carrie's had, I mean, I don't know if you've had that experience. Well, no, because I mean, in Sundance, um, we had the premiere and then we went to the, I felt sort of shell-shocked afterwards. Like, do you know what I mean? It was a bit, it was a bit kind of, I don't know. It was the the reaction in the room was like really powerful. Um, and then, you know, the after party, I sort of just felt a bit sort of dazed by the whole thing. I don't know. It was, a, it was. And then that weekend was over. And then, of course, we didn't get a huge amount of time to talk to people post that because then, you know, the film was going to come out and then it wasn't going to come out. So, in fact, and no one in my family has seen it. Um, and none of my friends have seen it because we haven't had any screenings or anything. So it's um, so I haven't had and I'm but I'm definitely aware of the sort of, you know, when you talk about real things that affect people, I think, it, you, you know, there is a certain level of responsibility and um and that comes with a bit of trepidation. So I, I suppose there is a part of me that's sort of, yeah, I'm, I expect those things to come and I expect those conversations to come. And I don't know, I think it'll be case by, and, and as Em says, you know, it is moving when people are, you know, courageous enough to share things with you. So I'm, I'm expecting that sort of thing, you know, when it's sort of finally released. You know, the lockdown is horrible for so many more important reasons, but it's an interesting one when you make a film, particularly a film like this, that, we have always, and, and the distributor have always believed that it's one of those films that you kind of want to see communally, because particularly because it's a horribly dark comedy. There's something about the kind of, the release, the tension and release that this film is built around that I don't know that it could ever quite be replicated, you know, at home. But it it was watching it in the cinema and also our first test screening, which Carrie wasn't at, but our first test screening, which was just a really completely mixed, mixed audience of all sorts of, you know, ages and genders. And um, there was an argument. There was a scene, in, there's a scene in the middle of the movie, um, which, you know, I won't kind of spoil, but, but there was an argument between two people, a shouting argument in the middle of it. And I thought that sort of, you know, it was kind of, for me at the time, it was sort of, 
horrifying because I was, you know, I just wasn't expecting anything like that. And as a filmmaker, you kind of don't necessarily want there to be like fisticuffs during your film. But actually afterwards I thought, well, that's sort of what it's supposed to do, really, this film, is it is supposed to make you feel, not answering any questions, I don't know the answer to any questions, none of us do, but it is supposed to make us all talk about it at least in a more candid way, and men and women too. I found that people discussing it, and I don't know if, Kerry, if you're the same, but like, it's not just women mm. that talk about this film, and it's not just the victims, you know, who talk about the film uh, candidly, there are also people who are going back over their past and you know, being honest with themselves. And that's really important. And I think that's work that we should all do. Like I've had to go back over my past and look at where I might not have been that supportive. You know, that's what you want from a good film, I think. Wait, you mean audience members started fighting during a scene? Oh God, yeah. No, two audience members, somebody left. Yeah, there, so there was a shouting match in the during a scene in the middle of the first test screening. And we were all sitting there like, and I was right at the back because I didn't want to sit. I wanted to kind of sit at the back and kind of watch everyone and, you know, see how it was being received. And so I couldn't hear what was going on. But there was an argument between the two people about whether they agreed with what was happening or not. Basically, somebody didn't like it. Somebody did. Somebody didn't like it being very vocal. The person who did like it said, well, if you don't like it, you know, leave. And yeah, and there was this thing and it went on for, you know, a good kind of couple of minutes before one one of them left. Yeah. Wow. But it was crazy. We couldn't believe it. I'm sure that's not, at the time it's happening, it it might be like, I don't know, upsetting, Um, but that's actually kind of cool, I have to say. It was, but for me, you know, it was my first movie and I was there with all the producers, terrified that they'd be like, okay, we're going to... But in fact, they were very supportive. That's Emerald Fennell and Carrie Mulligan of Promising Young Woman, which will be released to theaters by Focus Features on Christmas Day, followed by premium video on demand after that. After the break, we'll talk to Defy Blood star Jonathan Majors. This episode of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast is sponsored by Apple TV Plus, presenting the A24 and Apple original film On the Rocks, written and directed by Sofia Coppola. A New York mother faced with sudden doubts about her marriage teams up with her larger-than-life playboy father to tail her husband. What follows is a comic journey across the city, starring Rashida Jones, Bill Murray, and Marlon Wayans. Go to fyc.appletvplus.com for more. And we're back. It's the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, and I'm Janelle Riley. Spike Lee's The Five Blood stars Delroy Lindo as Paul, a Vietnam veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder who travels back to Vietnam in search of the remains of his fallen squad leader and a treasure his squadron had buried. Jonathan Majors plays his son, David, who joins him on what becomes a dangerous and violent journey. Variety's Jazz Tankay spoke with Majors about The Five Bloods, Lovecraft Country, and even his favorite superhero. He began with what it was like to work with Spike Lee. I mean, we're all the children of Spike. You know, um, directors, actors. I mean, he brought in a generation of talent that I am standing on the uh, shoulders of, you know. 
Um, and so I came into the Five Bloods with that admiration and with that kind of uh, awe, you know, uh, from a distance, you know. And then in meeting him, you hear the rumor and then here's the truth, you know. Um, in meeting him, it was... Um, it, it was quite a, f- a phenomenal moment because I was kind of, I was kind of taken aback quickly, you know, by his um, his gameness. You know, he's so game, you know, to make right. the best thing possible. You know, and he he's really a. Um, I said this to a few of your colleagues earlier. You know, like he he is just a um, he's a football coach. He's a basketball coach. You know. Um, but the beauty of it is that with me, he he was, and I saw this because you know, being the youngest fellow on uh, on the film, he was quite paternal with me, you know, and really installed and instilled in me many things that changed and altered my philosophy to, you know, my own career. You know, he had a way of really making it clear to me that um, it's you. I want you to do what you do, you know, um, and you know, it, it's so early yet, you know, in my, um, in my journey, I, I hope that, you know, I, I will do what I do. I mean, I don't, I don't really know what you mean. And you do what you do, do what you do. Morehouse was what he called me, Morehouse. I said, okay, all right. You know, so it was a, uh, a flowering and a becoming experience without a doubt. I love that. What was it like for you learning, you know, we we all are taught about the Vietnam War at school, mm-hmm. you know, whether you do it at, at college or whatever, but this story of black soldiers in Vietnam is an untold story. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you learning, diving into that history that's never told and learning about it? Yeah, I think in in school and you know whatever institution you come up in, or even whatever world you come up in, you know you hear the Vietnam War myth. You know the myth of the Vietnam War, the um, patriotism, the rock and roll, the long hair, the political backlash of it, but you don't really get to the um, the human quality of it, you know, um, in most cases, in most textbooks, I think entertainment tries to expand that. Um, and in the vein of entertainment, I don't think we've quite uh, tackled the story like we did in the Five Bloods. So I say all that to say that um, in learning about it in detail, I felt quite privileged, you know, knowing that most, you know, fellas my age and and most um, people, you know, don't really get this point of view. You know, uh, the Five Blood serves as a, as Brother Delroy Lindo says, a corrective to the Vietnam War uh, myth. You know, now that you have this other side of it being told in you know two hours thirty minutes, you know, with the Five Bloods, you have now you know a, a tapestry. You actually have you actually have a real story. You know that this was happening at the same time as this was that this was happening. Um, and for me personally, my grandfather was in the Vietnam War and, then, and was a Vietnam War veteran. And it was almost um, it was almost as if I was working backwards. 
like the more I learned about the Vietnam War, right? The more I realized I didn't know about the Vietnam War, the more I realized I didn't understand certain aspects of my grandfather. And then as I began to know more things about the Vietnam War, I began to understand certain nuances and textures that my grandfather um, had. You know, for instance, we were told growing up not to wake up grandpa. You know, my grandpa was always awake, you know, but the few times and the few instances that I did see him, I was told very clearly from my grandmama not to wake him up. And that was because he um, he had, um, I guess there's only only thing to call it is PTSD from uh, from the war, you know, and being woken up in that that kind of jolt and that in his youth being woken up like that meant something bad was happening, you know, and that there was nothing, uh, you know, a nine year old, eight year old, twelve year old, thirteen year old kid could do in the case that you know he he was to have um, a moment, you know. Also, the fact that he woke up hella early, you know, certain things like that, you know. So, I mean, it enriched my life um, very much. The people I worked with and the story we were telling and the story that was um, being unfolded, you know, as we as we actually shot the thing. Wow. What was it like establishing that father-son dynamic for the film? I thought it was such a great, complex relationship. I mean, thank thank you for saying that. Um, Delroy Lindo is probably one of the most um, authentic and um, present actors I've ever uh, had the pleasure of of working with. You know, and that dynamic, like, I mean, you got a mama. I mean, I don't know you really. You know, I know you well enough. You know, but you got a mama. You know, it, it, don't know what your relationship is with her, but you got that. Yeah. You know. Um, and if we were to if we were to just talk about what a mom is to you, right? You would have points of view, you would have experiences, you would have all these things that come from, you know, almost your reptilian brain, you know, about how that feels. It's such an ancient thing. That said, in my experience and in Delroy's experience, both of us are uh, sons, obviously. Um, uh, both of us are also fathers, but the the most fertile place for our development was the fact that we were both grown men who had experienced and continue to experience the presence and ghosts of our fathers and you wear that you keep that with you you know and so when we began to work we it was kind of a carte blanche on our end you know it's like bring it you know what i'm saying all the neurosis all the issues that you have with your son he also has a son that's a little younger than i am I believe maybe actually probably eight years younger than I am. Uh, he just started college. Um, he was using that. And I was looking at him as, as if, you know, you could easily have been my father, you know, and everything. When I say the word father, it conjures up certain aspects, you know, of him and certain stories and certain um, joys and hurts, etc. you know? And so we took that and, um, we actually began to play. That's really what we did. We played, we, we trusted each other. The truth of the scene was sovereign, you know, and Spike had a way of, yeah, I mean, Spike put us together. You know, that was one of the first things Spike said to me after offering me the role. He said, uh, your father's Del Orlando. You know who Del Orlando is? I said, yeah, come on, man. of course. <laughs> um, that's not true. I actually said, yes, sir. I know who Del Orlando is. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And yeah, and then, and, then, and then we just played it out. I mean, on set, it was interesting because 
it just it just was it, it was just natural you know there's nothing i can say that's like you know uh no 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 heebie-jeebie shit like that it was just really a conversation and the fact that we both were aware of the situation and of the stakes of the scene and of what it is we were trying to uh express i was trying to express in david you know a son's love that is that was my only job right to express that a son's love uh which is something that's quite universal a child's love you know and specifically a son's love and he was you know, dealing with his shit, you know, dealing with his demons. And at the same time, we were trying to come together. And I became a huge obstacle for him getting to me, and he became a huge obstacle for me getting to him. And that's why we have a story, you know. And ultimately, I think we, uh, David, I know, because we, we did it, you know, he achieved, he achieved the objective, you know, getting his father's love. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, then we have the five bloods to Lovecraft, country yeah tv tv yeah. series um completely different to working on a movie but Atticus is you know is quite a character i mean what <laughs> did you learn from playing him and what was that whole experience like to dive into that oh wow i mean to be honest with Atticus i'm still metabolizing what it is i've learned what the huge takeaway is in that. I mean, his arc is so, it's such a hero's journey, his arc. You know, he starts off as the quote-unquote prodigal and ends as the the patriarch of the family, you know, and it, and it ends in, you know, the ultimate sacrifice. Um, my big takeaway from from that was, you know, and I've said this before, and, and and I'll say it again because I think it's so important that you know, when we look at stories, the he- the hero or the heroine, right, is is he or she who allows their heart to break, right? I've said that before, um, but to I only know that now after playing uh, Atticus, you know, so now I can l- you I see heroes everywhere. You know, I, I I look back at the relationship between me and my mother and that my actual mother and that she allowed her heart to break every single day. You know, like she was my hero, like she felt the pain. Right. So I wouldn't have to, you know, she did the work so I could move forward. You know, you look at, I mean, shit, the campaign managers, you know, like the fact that they've done these guys, those guys are tired. You know, those, those guys and gals are tired, you know, like. That, that the work they put in for the greater good, you know, is such a such a novel and such a um, human quality. And, and I hadn't really come across a character that got to experience that for, you know, 10 hours. Lovecraft Country is a 10-hour canvas, you know. So that was, that was a huge takeaway. And, you know, you go farther when you go together. You know, like, that's a, that's a true ensemble. Um, and we had to hold each other down for... Seven, eight, I was there eight months, you know, I think, yeah, six, we had a huge, you know, go away at six, five months, people went away. And then six months, some folks went and I was there for eight, you know, I mean, also just as far as the craft goes, you you learn how to, Ian Demange is the first, the first uh, director, you know, he directed the pilot um, and was instrumental in, in, in actually my casting. Um, He told me very early on morsels, you know, that it's important that you, you give morsels. And I think as a young actor, 
uh, which I am and which which a lot of us are, you know, you want to you want to go, you want to you want to gun it, you want to give it. Um, and what he taught me and, and therefore what the show taught me is that you just give enough, you know, you just give enough a little bit at a time, you know, and it's the momentum of of the experience. Right. That becomes, you know, the finale that becomes the quote unquote moment. Did you know, like, you know, with movies, you know where that ending is going to be because you're going to get a script and that's your story right there. Did you know Atticus's fate? You know, I'm not going to reveal what happens because, you know, people are still going to discover the show. But did you know what was going to happen to him when you got that, when you signed on and when you got that first script? No, I had no idea. I mean, I I, I had no idea um, that it was going to that his fate was going to befall him uh, in that way. Um, and it was, uh, it was surprising. I mean, it was quite surprising. And it, it, it allowed me to really, again, you know, as I said, morsels, to really look at what it is you're building, you know, what it is I was building. And I felt, I felt when I received that script, I went, oh my God, like, I, I really hope it's all made sense up until this point, because this is it, <laughs> you know, this is, this is it, you know, and so Atticus and I both had to come to peace with it, you know, um, and that really is what the, in my opinion, and what, and what we, what I attempted to do in, in, in the, in the finale is show that, that, that we're watching someone deal we've watched for nine hours this 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 character this man deal with this pain and sorrow and he's 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 had joy occasionally and, and we're understanding who he is and it all makes sense and then in the fine in the in the final analysis he must find peace in order for it to really end properly you know what i'm saying truthfully rather I know. I wish we could talk. There's a sequence that I wanted to talk about, but we'll 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 be we'll be I'll behave and not talk about. I won't spoil the finale for you. But yeah. your next project, Ant Man. I know you're not gonna you're not gonna be allowed to say anything on that either. But were you like a huge superhero fan growing up? And you're gonna play a baddie, Jonathan. The baddie. Um, we're sorry. The number you've called is not a working number. It must be dialed the correct area code. Please hang up All and right. try again. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Who was your favorite superhero growing up? Oh, who was my favorite superhero growing yeah. up? I can ask you that question. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. I loved it's uh, fuck man because because now I mean now it's funny because like gro- ah, let me just say what I have to say before there's too much color on. Um, I love Batman. I love Batman. In fact, I dressed up as Batman. Um, I think it was my fifth birthday and my mother made me a cake with a black Batman, actually, that said, uh, happy birthday, Jonathan. And I remember that because she had to make two because the first one I bumped over in my cape and it spilled all over our floor, all over the kitchen floor. And my mama, my superhero, Terry Anderson, uh, went back to work. And made me another cake that looked exactly the same before my birthday party. It must have been it must have been five years old. Oh my gosh. She's a true superhero. My mother is the G of G's. 
That's Jonathan Majors. You can watch all of Lovecraft Country Season 1 now on HBO, and The Five Bloods is currently streaming on Netflix. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head over to Variety.com and click on the Awards Circuit tab to find the latest Oscar predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Clayton Davis, Jazz Tankay, and Michael Schneider, I'm Janelle Riley. We'll see you on the circuit. This episode of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast is sponsored by Apple TV Plus, presenting the A24 and Apple original film On the Rocks, written and directed by Sofia Coppola. A New York mother faced with sudden doubts about her marriage teams up with her larger-than-life playboy father to tail her husband. What follows is a comic journey across the city, starring Rashida Jones, Bill Murray, and Marlon Wayans. Go to fyc.appletvplus.com for more.